What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Exposure to a high energy cosmic storm could advance our knowledge about planetary life. To our future. I don't trust him. We got what we wanted. Just worried about what he wants. Your entire biophysical structure is changing. That's terrible news. I think I'll get a second opinion. The cloud has fundamentally altered our DNA. That's gross. Reed, look at me. I can't. He's heating up from his core. You don't want to walk around on fire for the rest of your life, do you? Is that a trick question? Come on, am I the only guy who thinks this is cool? What if we got these powers for a reason? I've always wanted power. Victor, you always thought you were a god. Let's not fight. No. Let's. Don't even think about it. Never do. Flamer! Oh, you're hot. Why, thank you. So are you. Shama people, and welcome to our 120th episode of Happiness and Darkness, a superhero movie podcast, where we discuss superhero movies from Marvel, DC, Dark Horse Image, and more. If it came from a comic and had theatrical release, you know we'll discuss it. Naturally, there will be spoilers, folks, so you have been warned. I'm one of your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and with me today is first-time guest co-host and a great podcaster in his own, in his own right, Mr. Sean Winningham. Hey, Sean, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, the pleasure is certainly ours, Sean. Very, very happy to have you and have a new voice on this podcast. It's always, it's always great to meet, uh, you know, fellow fans of the superhero movie genre. So definitely very happy uh, to have you today. And even though I guess the movie discussed today is a little bit, uh, you know, should we say fans are not particularly fa- uh, fond of this film, but uh, I guess we'll see how we do when it comes to this one. Because today we are discussing Fantastic Four from 2005, directed by Tim Story, whom we'd actually met on the sequel to this film on this podcast. The film was written by Michael France and Mark Frost, while the original score was by John Ottman. And to put it in today's money, this movie cost $142 million to make and made $473 million at the box office. So not a bad turnout for this uh, first Fantastic Four film. So, uh, Sean, when it comes to like first impressions and general thoughts on this film, what did you make of it? Yeah, so I remember um, I actually saw this film when it came out. Um, I was in college when 2005 came around. And I remember, um, you know, at that point, we've already had Spider-Man. We've already had X-Men. And um, and so I think this was, you know, along the lines of having another superhero movie that was out that we were just really excited about. And um, I know for me personally, I always knew of the Fantastic Four, but never really um 
been introduced to their story. So this was the first time I've actually got introduced to who they were um, by seeing on the big screen. And I remember thinking at the time, the graphics um, and the, you know, the visual graphics and the, um, and the special effects and everything uh, were cutting edge at the time. But like, you know, now that you go back and look at it, it you could definitely tell <laughs> what's been CGI and not. Um, but I mean, still, even with that being said, um, you know, it's, it, it was, it was something that was well done for given where they're at at that time. And I think the story was really interesting because it was a story where it was kind of like the X-Men where you didn't really get to know the origin story of how the team knew each other. You just kind of accepted the fact that they had a history with each other, but it was never really clear what that history was. Um, whereas the X-Men kind of, you know, did a little bit deeper dive of like how they started for Fantastic Four, just kind of glossed over that and just went straight into how they get their powers and what it meant to be a superhero team and things like that. And you just accepted that, you know, they had a history with each other. And you didn't have to know that. And I think they actually did that pretty well because, um, you know, they they did a lot of that relationship building in the film with just the scenarios that they had. They did a lot of, you know, show not tell type of thing with their relationships. And I think they did that pretty well um, for the most part that I haven't really seen a whole lot of other films do that. Uh, with the exception of, you know, Spider-Man with Tom Holland. But I think at that point, everybody knows that, you know, Uncle Ben dies, that they didn't need to have <laughs> Uncle Ben die again on the big screen. Um, but, you know, Fantastic Four was probably the first time I saw, um, oh, gosh, the, the main uh, actor there, Ian. Um, Griffith. Uh, yes, thank you. Um, Jessica Alba, I've seen her in Dark Angel, so I wasn't new to her. Um, Chris Evans, I think that was the first time I saw him, with the exception of... Um, I know he was in a movie called Cell Phone. I can't remember mm-hmm. if that was before or after Fantastic Four. I think that was like one of his first major um, roles that he had in um, in cinema. And then uh, Michael Chiklis was, um, you know, I watched I watched him on uh, not Dragnet, but The Commissioner or The Commish um, growing up. And so I've seen him in other films before. So that wasn't like his big breakthrough film at all because he was already well known at that point. Um, and then the man who plays uh, Dr. Doom was on Nip Tuck. And yeah. again, I can't remember if that was before or after that movie. But, um, you know, I, I thought it was an interesting cast, but they did a really good job of, you know, having a collection of actors that seem to interact and um, work really well with chemistry with one another that worked um, great in terms of ha- a, a team that had a history with each other and then how, you know, that relationship just kind of, you know, got solidified within the first 10 or 15 minutes, right? Like, you know, that Ben Grimes did not like Johnny at all and that uh, Frank or um, I'm sorry, Franklin, Richard and um, and Susan had a history together, romantic history that uh, Victor was somebody that they all knew, but you know, it was one of those things where it's like you kind of they kind of knew that Victor wasn't always, you know, the with the best intentions, but he was also somebody with um, you know, intelligence and power, stuff like that. So they set that up really well from the beginning. Um, and I think they just did a great job of telling the story uh to begin with. So yeah, so I remember when I watched it back then, it was a great film. And watching it now, it was still it's still a great film with the exception of you can tell that the visual effects was definitely of its time. And so it, you know, it doesn't really bother me because when you put in that context, like if it was made today, it's like, yeah, that would be really bad. But given that it was like almost, you know, 20 years ago, I mean, not quite then, but like, you know, 16, 17 years ago, um, you know, it makes sense that, you know, it looks the way it did because of where 
um, you know, visual effects were at that time. So very, very much so. And I agree. I think, you know, of the Fantastic Four films that we've been given thus far, this is probably the best of the three, if you will, if you don't count the one that kind of has been disowned and kind of been forgotten way back when. But yeah, because we'd actually obviously we discussed these in reverse order because we'd actually done um, the Silver Surfer film before we did this one. And I actually think this is the best of the three. And we will actually soon be discussing the remake. But Enough of that, that more on, on that later. But yeah, I really enjoyed this as well. I have to admit, as much as this film has, has been lambasted and the franchise has been lambasted by so many people saying, oh, it's one of the worst things that Marvel ever made. And why did they do this to us and everything else? This is actually a really, this is actually a decent film. I mean, for the time it came out, when I think it was also a time when, you know, they were kind of throwing superhero movies at the wall and see what stuck more than actually having mm-hmm. a plan in mind of, you know, be it an MCU or any kind of shared universe. I think they were very much, right. okay, we have these properties. Let's see what works. And right. I think all in all, this one worked pretty well. I, I enjoyed the cast. I think the writing was decent. I enjoyed the action. In it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think all in all, it was a good introduction to the Fantastic Four, even for folks who were not familiar with them, maybe had heard of them, but never, because I always try to put my mind in somebody who's never opened a comic book in their lives. And I think that right. uh, this, this would work for a normie, as we like to call them. <laughs> this would probably <laughs> resonate pretty well, I, I find. And so, yeah, all in all, I, I enjoyed it myself. So let's deeper dive into our movie by looking at the, uh, our characters here, starting with the first member of the Fantastic Four, and that is the aforementioned Ian Griffith as Reed Richards. So when it came to Reed, uh, what did you make of him, Sean? Yeah, so um, again, you know, just to touch base on what you said, I, I think that's a great challenge that um, superhero films have that's based in the comics is creating something that appeals to people who's never read the comics before, but at the same time, diehard fans who have loved the comics. And the way I've always approached it personally is that whatever they do on film is its own universe because, you know, you have to kind of accept the fact that when you look at the comics, there's so much history to some of these characters and where they're at now that it's hard to translate that into an hour and a half, two hour film. And so I always try to treat that film as, you know, its own comic book universe whenever it's dealing with comic book superheroes. Right. And so um, I think Reed Richards, um, again, because this was probably the first time I was really introduced to who Reed Richards was. um, I find it really fascinating because this movie kind of played on some stereotypes of different kinds of people during that time. And Reed Richards was definitely, you know, the stereotypical scientist who was really smart, um, happened to be, you know, very handsome looking, which, you know, you know, there are scientists that are good looking, but um, I think at that time, you know, that wasn't really quite um, the thing that people really put out in the media is that, you know, still scientists weren't always, you know, the best looking guys, but he was also a clueless guy as well, too, when it came to, um, not just like his relationship with Susan and how he couldn't read between the lines of what Susan wanted uh, from their relationship, but also he was always clueless in terms of, or I don't want to say clueless necessarily, but naive is is probably a better term to use where it came to like Victor's intention and just kind of picking up on, um, you know, what significance that human emotion has. That wasn't like really scientific. That's a little bit more subjective in that round. Right. And so, mm-hmm. um, so I thought he was an interesting character in that he was, kind of you know based on the stereotype of a scientist but 
you still really enjoyed him because he still had that, you know, passion for not just science, but just for, you know, people. And he was a very loyal guy to Ben. And he was very loyal to Sue, even though they weren't in, you know, some sort of relationship. They did have a history there and he still cared for her very much, which also extended out to her brother, Johnny, who was, you know, the hothead, like Ben always called him and, um, you know, wasn't always the most sensitive and, you know, he was the most reckless guy. Um, you know, Reed still cared for him as though it was his own brother as well, too. And so he was somebody that I think everybody really emulated a lot and that they wanted to have that sort of intelligence and leadership and loyalty that he had as well, too. So very much so. I mean, you do make a good point because I think he is kind of the stereotypical geek or nerd, if you will, in the sense, the guy that mm-hmm. has, I mean, he could fit right into, uh, you know, one of those, the, those TV shows that you get nowadays where, where you kind of have the, the kind of um, the scientific kind, like um, c- kind of character where is very mm-hmm. you know, highly intelligent, but maybe slow on the uptake when it comes to n- regular things. Like, for example, when we see that, I right. think it is, uh, I can't recall now whether it was Johnny or Ben that kind of tried to create the situation where him and Susan are alone. And he doesn't get it that he, he is very solemn. What are you doing here? And they're like, oh, right, we had a plan, you know. So it's very much, right. he could be an extra on the Big Bang Theory. That's what the kind of, right. the kind of character, I could see him, kind of hanging out with it with the guys in big bang theory at least in the early seasons anyway but um right yep. I, I love that concept that you know he is because i think the powers that they get almost reflect their personalities or maybe the the lack of things they have whereas maybe reed needs to learn to be more flexible and that's why maybe in the movie they're trying to portray the fact that he becomes Mr. Fantastic who can literally elongate and extend himself in all sorts of ways and be more flexible. So it could be, <laughs> it, could, it could be that um, right. maybe it's, it's just my reading into it possibly, but that's, that's the way I see it. But I think he did a great job. I very much believe this guy was Reed Richards from the comics. And, you know, if ever we do have this whole multiverse thing, I wouldn't mind seeing him come back as a version of Reed Richards. I mean, I know that Ian these mm-hmm. days is probably not as young as he used to be, but I think it'd be, it'd be interesting to see. And I think he also makes for a good leader by and large, bearing in mind, you know, Susan, I think uh, is, is probably more ready to follow him compared to dealing with Johnny and Ben who are constantly bickering between the two, but he is very much mm-hmm. the pair. I think the parents to these two, even though I think Ben might be older than him, but it almost seems mm-hmm. like he's, he's parenting him and Susan are almost like parents to Johnny and Ben who are like the kids who can't stop fighting. It's like, you know, stop it or we're going to turn the car around, you know? So it's, <laughs> that's, that's the kind of impression I got, but he very much has the leadership scores. I think he has the charisma of a leader, but Maybe he's lacking and, and starts to learn more about his human side of you because he's so engrossed in his work and so about wanting because you know, he's madly in love with science and uh, as right. most scientists are. And so maybe he loses track of what really matters. And I think that's probably, I guess, we someone get an idea of why him and Susan broke up, maybe because his work got in the way and he was so passionate about his what he was doing that he kind of left her by the wayside but uh, mm-hmm. i was i was very very happy with with this with this uh, portrayal of reed richards for sure Mm-hmm. So, so let's get to our second member of the team and a woman who both Reed and Victor Von Doom are battling for her affections, the amazing Jessica Alba as Susan Storm. So when it came to Dear Susie, Sean, what did you make of her? 
Yeah, so she was um, a very interesting character in that. Again, I, I think a lot of these characters kind of fell into those uh, stereotypes. I remember watching this movie recently where, um, you know, they had that whole scene with Reed telling Sue, you know, tried to emulate the kind of motion that you had um, up on the space station for uh, when they had the storm accident. And he was talking to her about like, you know, if only you can control your emotions. And 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 at the time, I'm not sure if it was playing on the stereotype of, um, you know, you know, women are emotional at that time. Cause again, I mean, even though this was 2005, this was like 15 to 16 years ago, like it, it's also still kind of recent for me myself, but a lot has changed since then. So I don't, so I wouldn't put past them if they were playing on that stereotype or if this was a commentary about how people still had that stereotype and, you know, we need to get away from that because Sue was obviously offended by that. And, 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 um, you know, it didn't really help the case that, you know, when he said that <laughs> she got a little, you know, uh, angered by that. And so it kind of played into like, well, obviously she is emotional because, you know, she's a woman in that sort of um, perspective, which, it, you know, again, it's hard to tell if that's what they were going for or not. But I think what was interesting is that that was really the only time we see her get emotional in those kinds of things, because she's definitely... Um, more level-headed than I think any of them um, for a lot of things. It's just that when it gets into like situations of stress or when it comes to read, that's when um, she has a little bit of a, um, you know, emotional tie because she has that romantic, um, you know, interest of read and that history and everything like that. But when you see her in some of the other movies uh, or I'm sorry, in the other scenes of the movie, she is pretty level-headed. She's the one that says that, you know, they really need to, stay in the um in the Baxter building for their safety. She's the one that figures out that, you know, Reed is um uh you know stressed out by work and tries to take his mind off of things and everything like that. And so she's actually somebody that's very rational. And I think that scene just kind of really um did a disservice to her because her character is actually um, not that emotional at all. But I mean with all that being said, um I think it was really interesting that um that she is the love interest of Reed Richards. And then that, you know, she was somehow the love interest of Victor, but she pretty much denied, like they were ever a thing. So like the message never got to Victor for whatever reason. Um, although, I mean, I can, I can speculate why he never got that message. Right. Because he just kind of dreamed in his head and never really, you know, uh, talked to her about actually being a couple or anything like that, which, which is kind of odd. But um, I think with her character, it was really great to see, how she is somebody that um, worked really, um, re- really well with all the members of the team with her relationship with Johnny. And it's definitely a sibling <laughs> kind of relationship, especially when they start arguing about like their, their powers at the beginning and things like that. How she still has, um, you know, even though she re-broke up, she still has a very friendly relationship with Ben. Um, how she's actually somebody that, um, you know, as, as a woman has worked up her, her way up to a powerful company in the, you know, I think doom industries or whatever they're called. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she was really an interesting character that I think got overshadowed by a couple of scenes that I don't know if they were trying to make a commentary about, um, you know, if they're trying to make a commentary about how people perceive women or if they were playing, if they're leaning into that stereotype about women being emotional, um, you know, very hard. So I'm not sure like what they're trying to get out with that, but I think it got overshadowed by that. But um, going to your point about, um, you know, their powers being tied to, you know, some sort of emotional state, that's actually a really good 
point that you brought up because, um, you know, I didn't really think about it that way, but you can make a case about, you know, how they got their powers based on like characteristic trait that they have. And it's, you know, it's a metaphor for that. And, you know, Sue, I'm sure like, you know, you can make that connection that she is the invisible girl because, or the invisible woman, um, I think in the movie they call her Invisible Girl, but I think yeah. you know Marvel has actually moved away from that and and has been calling her Invisible Woman. But um, you know because she probably feels like she's never you know seen by um, by Reed or is over always overlooked as a woman and things like that. And so it's it's um, so I think it was like a really interesting way to kind of show that the power is also a metaphor, which I know they leaned into that when they talk about um, you know Ben struggling with the fact that you know his biological his biology got changed to you know more of a, um, a, a geological state. Right. And so he was saying that, you know, he would give anything to be invisible and all that. But I, I think you make a pretty good point that you can make an argument that these powers are reflective of some sort of character trait of each character as well, too. So I and very, very well said indeed. And I think that is definitely the case. And I have to admit, I was so glad that uh, that uh, Susan was not a secretary to Victor because like oh here yes. we go <laughs> when I saw her come in I was like please don't be Victor's secretary I've had enough of seeing women who are working in powerful companies acting as secretaries and I was actually right. glad that she did have like you said a position of power and she's clearly an in- incredibly intelligent woman herself and you know she understands mm-hmm. science and all I mean heck she goes on the mission with with the rest of the boys because she knows her stuff and uh, and I, and I love the fact that you know for once she wasn't like should we say the the girl playing in the in the boys treehouse if you will because she definitely can uh, you know should we say stand with with the boys and she's not just you know the the pretty thing to look at because she really right. does does bring her a game to to the the team and i think is very much the heart of the team and understands the human relationships more compared to you know the in inverted commas leader that is reed because she gets what people are going through whereas reed might not be as good as I mentioned before with kind of human interactions. She gets what is going on between Johnny and also Ben. And the fact that, yeah, she she very much is an older sister to Johnny and everything he does. And I I can only imagine what it must be like to be, you know, should we say related to Johnny Storm, be you his brother or his older sister. But I'm assuming that she's probably his older sister. Um, But Mm -hmm. uh, but I I just love the interaction between the two. I think Jessica Alba did a fabulous, fabulous job in this role, especially in this first film. In the second one, possibly not so much, but there, I don't think she was written as well as she is here. But I I was actually, the one thing that I was just trying to understand was how, because you were mentioning that, She's not technically romantically involved with Victor as much as he would like <laughs> to think that they are. Because like, oh, right. you work with me, you're like my right-hand woman. But at the same time, and he, apparently he wants to like propose to her, I believe, before the, the four set off on the mission. But oh, I, was yeah, actually, I, was actually, I was actually trying to figure out, so is, am I understanding this right? Did Susan and Reed basically rekindle their love when they went to the planetarium? Is that when it all happened? <laughs> yeah i i um my impression is that they kind of i mean that kindle was always there it was just like you know the circumstances is what made them break up to begin with but i think um it really rekindled when they started when they get back to the baxter building right mm-hmm. um like i well 
and maybe it started a little bit before that because he had that scene where when they're recovering from the accident that um that susan overhears uh reed calling uh, t- uh excuse me sorry um telling um i don't know who it was i don't know if it was like a nursing staff or something like that but they were bringing in flowers and he was saying that I think orchids um, is something that she's allergic to. So don't give those to her, but she loves sunflowers, but that by her bed. And you see that she actually heard him say that. And so I think that's probably where it started, um, you know, for her. And then, you know, Reed being the, the stereotypical geek, probably, you know, that it probably never went out. It was always <laughs> there and it never, you know, went away for him. But, you know, that's, that's probably the start for Sue seeing that, you know, he still like remember those details about her and care for her still and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I, I wonder, it, it was interesting to see just like what you said with, um, with her and Victor, how Victor was under the impression that, um, that, you know, they were, they were romantically involved. I want to say dating because I think, you know, Sue made it clear that they were never a thing. And so my guess is that he probably thought with him being, and I don't want to get too much into this because I know we're going to talk about him a little bit later, but with his position of power, he probably thought that their relationship was, you know, intimate because of that. Whereas, you know, she saw it more as a, as a professional relationship. And my guess is like, you know, off screen, he probably had a couple of moments where he thought it was romantic. And then she was probably just being polite because he didn't want to, you know, jeopardize her, um, her job, you know, because of, you know, her being a woman in the workplace and what they have to struggle through and, and, and put up with to be where they're at. And I'm sure, you know, there was, there was a couple of times where she's like, I'm not going to like, confront him because of what it could possibly mean uh you know for me professionally if if i made him upset or anything like that and so it could be one of those things where like he completely fabricated in his mind and in reality they never had that you know kind of relationship especially if they never were dating either so definitely you know what i almost got the reaction when we first see reed in victor's office with uh susan as well it almost reminded me of uh, captain america when it came to, uh, um, should we say, Tony Stark's dad and uh, and Peggy, where he's like, <laughs> so you guys have been fonduing. It was kind of that reaction. It kind of right. reminded me a little bit of that. It's almost that innocence, if you will, that that um, Captain America has in that film and Reed has in this one. It's like he assumes just because she's working for him that they've been fonduing in inverted commas. <laughs> So, right. But but in this instance, Victor also thought the same thing, too. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so, I, and I suppose maybe I was colored by the fact that Chris Evans was in this film. It made me think of Captain America. But uh, oh, plus, that's true. Yeah. And plus it's Marvel as well. So I'm like, oh, I see what you're doing here. But, uh, right. but it was but it was great. And uh, yeah, I, I definitely loved uh, Jessica Alba. And this, this was very much the period in which I think Jessica was at the height of her career or was going to be because you know, she was kind of like the sex symbol, if you will, of the time between obviously mm-hmm. then going on to do things like Sin City and, uh, you know, Dark Angel and all this kind of stuff. She was very much you know, the girl to watch the it's girl of the time, if you will. So, uh, mm-hmm. so I thought, uh, I thought it was, it was a good choice. And I think she, she suited the role very, very well indeed. And speaking of Susan, let's get to Susan's brother and the hothead of the group. No pun intended, <laughs> Mr. Chris Evans as Johnny Storm. So Sean, you know, you being familiar, obviously with the MCU, what did you think of, of Johnny Storm and did it, did you feel straight, did it feel strange for you seeing Chris as the human torch and not Captain America? <laughs> um, you know, it's because this is the first film that we saw him in a superhero 
excuse me, sorry, in a superhero role that um, I, I think when I saw him as Captain America, I, I, I don't think I even made the connection at first or even like went back to like, oh, yeah, he's, you know, Johnny Storm. Um, you know, not that there was a whole lot of time that had passed between, you know, Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer and Captain America. But because the the characters and his look was very different, like, you know, in, in Fantastic Four, like, yeah, he was um, in great shape. But for Captain America, he had to be in like peak shape um, because he was supposed to be a super soldier. Right. And so. Um, so I never really, you know, had a moment where I'm watching him play Captain America or Johnny Storm and think of his other character that he played necessarily. But I think it's really interesting to see how well that he's done that Marvel, you know, enjoys having him play, you know, two very different roles, right? Like in, in this one with Fantastic Four, excuse me, he um is a very immature you know, still a great looking guy, but, you know, very egotistical and is all about, um, you know, the, uh, the, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? The immediate, um, uh, the words escaping my head right now. I, I forget, but like the, the immediate, um, sensation or thank you. Yes. In the immediate gratification, whereas, you know, Captain America is, you know, beyond all that, he's more mature and, um, you know, is not very egotistical at all, right? Like even when he was a super soldier, he still had doubts and and um, you know uncertainties and things like that. And so I think it was really interesting to see him play two very different characters. But it's hard to see that character played by somebody else because he just did such a fantastic job, no pun intended, <laughs> of each of those. Right. Um, with that being said, I think he, you know, again was the stereotypical jock role, um, you know, especially Chris Evans with a couple of, of roles that he played. I think he was in, you know, not another team movie where he played the, the jock. Right. And so he was the good looking athletic kind. And that's, you know, what he was for Johnny storm. Um, but he was also very comedic as well too. And so I think Chris Evans did a great job of emulating that persona. And I don't know, to be honest with this, some of the comics I've read, I don't know, if that was exactly his persona from um, his comic book origin, um, I got to say, like, it still makes a lot of sense, though, even if it wasn't, it makes a lot of sense in this context because of um, his relationship with Sue and just he needed a comedic relief between the four of them. And it just made a lot of sense to have his role to be that sort of character that gives, you know, kind of a, counterbalance to the other three in terms of you know the level of maturity and where they're at in their lives and things like that he really personified a lot of those things that um, the other three don't have that really need to bring that sort of um, balance into play and so i thought chris evans just did a great job of kind of showing that um, kind of character and then when it came to um Johnny Storm having to be relied on and be able to pull through. He did that in the final, you know, battle scene where he saw something was going on to the Baxter building, you know, even though he was just, you know, really upset with what happened earlier and he walked out and everything, he saw something was going on with the Baxter building. So his, you know, immediate response was to go back and help and see what's going on because he's still part of that team and he still, you know, cares about them, even though he's really <laughs> to himself when it comes down to it, you know, he still does the right thing. But um, I mean, he just did a great job of being able to show, you know, the kind of like hot head, egotistical, uh, womanizing type of character that he plays. And also, you know, like, like what you said, presumably 
the younger brothers who storm and how they have that sort of, you know, nagging brother sister relationship of, you know, how the, how she just can't, she just puts up with them because she says he's, he's her brother. And, you know, he just, same thing with, with her, right? Like, you know, he's only around her because he sees his sister. And um, I think, you know, he was able to really lean into those kinds of relationships really well. Um, and kind of show like how he viewed everybody. So he always likes to give Ben a, a hard time and then read. He's always like, you know, he's the, he's the dumbest, you know, he's like the dumbest smart guy, I think is what he referred to him yeah. um, in the movie and everything like that. And so in terms of how he perceives any, and he treats him as such, you know, not just saying, you know, this is what he thinks of them, but he also treats them that way. I think they did a great job of, of showing that. Um, and so I, it's hard to see him having any other superpower that would work really well with that persona. Um, and then that goes into, you know, um, Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer, where we actually see them switch powers and they have a little bit of a comedic relief that way as well, too. But I think him having um, the power of being able to uh, become the human torch makes a lot of sense for his persona as well, too. Oh, it definitely, definitely does. And I definitely have to tip my hat to Chris Evans because, as you said, it's so such a diverse role going from like the leader of the Avengers to <laughs> this kind of you know, very energetic, very jockey, very hot-headed kind of guy. And mm-hmm. I have to say, him and, uh, and Gene Simmons probably should share notes because the amount of women this guy kind of is able to bed, I think him and Gene Simmons <laughs> should share notes because in any situation, be it a nurse, be it some random fan, be it anywhere, he's, I guess, you know, obviously being a very handsome man, but I think he's also, he knows how to he's very much a ladies man very charming so he knows how to should we say mm. play the ladies game if you will and uh, i thought right. it was it was a nice sort of addition to the character that he is very much into extreme sports so obviously he's doing all the whole kind of snowboarding thing from the helicopter and then he's doing mm. the stunts on the bike and everything else so he's very much a daredevil no pun intended but um he loves that that, that he always lives for the hype and for the adrenaline rush, he seems very much to be a thrill seeker. And I think, mm. uh, which is probably part of him also being, you know, still the, the youngest of the group. And, and I love mm. the fact that he's the one who gives the branding of the, the number four on the, on the costume. <laughs> that was fabulous. Like, wow, Johnny, you know, because he's all about the marketing. I mean, even though... right. It, it kind of reminds me, you know, since, you know, as, as recording this, uh, you know, watching Hawkeye, it kind of reminds me the way Kate Bishop talks to Clint about, you have to have a brand. <laughs> Talk to Johnny right, Storm. Yeah. <laughs> the guy knows all <laughs> about branding. So, right. So it kind of made me think of that. But I absolutely loved what, what Chris brought to this character. And I maybe hope, I mean, I know it probably will never happen. This is a pipe dream of mine that we might be able to see Chris Evans kind of as Johnny Storm and this Captain America kind of meets together and kind of have a weird conversation like, dude, who are you? And this kind of thing, because they're such diverse characters. And yeah, I, right. I'm trying to imagine, you know, obviously when, you know, moving further here, we do get to probably, I assume the Fantastic Four will get introduced into the MCU, who will play him? Because so far, I think Chris has very much led the way on how to play a good Johnny Storm. So, and I love the mm-hmm. fact, that he, like you said, he's always looking for instant gratification. He's always looking to how, how can we monetize this thing? Because we've got something right. going here. Let's go for the, for the money and for the sponsors. And in fact, we get that, of course, in Rise of the Silver Surfer. But um, yeah, as much as I think he might be egotistical and all about the ladies and maybe a little bit shallow, 
I, I love the fact that at the end of the day, his, his heart does sort of shine out and he does come back to the team and he's all about, you know, let's do this. You know, we can do this as a team. And that, that was a great moment. And I think a turning point somewhat for Johnny, because we know that after that, he's going to go back to his, his old shenanigans. And of course, the dynamic between him and Ben is just priceless. I, uh, it definitely made me chuckle. Even, uh, you know, both when, when I watched this way back when, and even now that I'm almost 40, it still made me laugh. I said, yeah, this is, this is the camaraderie <laughs> that they have as much as it irks Ben Grimm, no end. But uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a great, great, very well played by Chris for sure. So let's round off our heroes by looking at our last, but certainly not least member of the team, Mr. Michael Chiklis as Ben Grimm. So Sean, what did you make of him? Yeah, so um, I will say me personally, I've always been um, somebody that really enjoyed the... Um, leaders of the group and the like strong uh big type because i'm my i myself am uh, like six foot six and so i've always been like a strong big guy so and you're a huge hulk fan too and i'm a huge hulk fan yeah (laughs) so like hulk and and juggernaut and all that and so the thing is somebody that um i really um gravitated to when watching this film and uh, uh, especially michael chicklets because of all the characters um you know michael chiklis was somebody I always stand out be just because i remember seeing um you know some of the commissions i mentioned earlier but i think the character of ben grimes was very interesting because when we first started out with the film he was somebody that um i think as you saw his character develop by the end of the film that he had the most to lose and he has the probably the most tragic story of the mm-hmm. four because at the beginning of the movie, you saw that, you know, he had a great relationship with Reed. He was still, you know, in, in good relationship with Sue. He had a wife that he was crazy about and, you know, they were crazy about each other. And it seemed like even when, uh, you know, when you saw Reed and Sue kind of interact with each other, it was clear that they, you know, looked to uh, Ben and Debbie as kind of like their role model of like the ideal uh, romantic partner, right? Like when uh, Ben was talking to Reed about, how after they go through this action, it makes you think about like, you know, who you're spending your life with, you know, <laughs> reading went straight into, yeah, you and Debbie make a, you know, a great couple and things like that. And, and clear they're, you know, um, idolized. And so after, you know, he has this transformation and then his wife leaves him, you know, like it, like she was his world and it literally like his world changed in a lot of different ways, like, you know, physically, uh, you know, philosophically, because his attitude kind of changed, you know, uh, um, towards the world that you saw from where he was at from the beginning to where he ended up being after his transformation. Um, but he just had a lot of changes in a lot of different ways. Um, and so you actually didn't get to see too much of um, how far down he went with um, like his some of his depression and just like handling his mental health in that situation but he did see some of that especially when you get to the bar scene and then it was nice to see that by the end of it um you know even though he was able to transform back into um his human self he decided to accept that you know this was a um a reality that only he could really help his friends and and the new threat that they face and you know accepting his person his uh permanent change of being the thing right which 
By the way, this is one flaw I saw in the movie is that I'm not sure how he was able to use that machine again after <laughs> Doom was the one that had to power it, unless you could explain it that, you know, once Doom powered it, like the power stayed with it. But but the whole issue is that they didn't have enough power and then it had to come from Doom. But somehow he was able to get right back in that machine and transform again at that point. Right. Um because but, 2005 superhero movies, I think. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's like it's like this is this is accept as fact and go on. Although, like, go with say, it, you folks. Can say that. <laughs> yeah, you can say that was with some of the movies, you know, t- nowadays as well too. But, um, but I like the fact that you know by the end of it, you know, he is still kind of working out those um, permanent changes, what it means for him. But he's starting to get in a better place, and and I I think you know because of how you know things were, you know as we talked about 15 years ago, part of that identity has to do with, you know, your romantic relationship and, and, you know, who you have in your life and things like that. So it was nice to see um, Alicia being his new love interest, which I love the fact that was Carrie Washington and that she's blind. Right. And so it has like a lot of different kind of layers and commentary in terms of, you know, what you can do with that sort of relationship and what it means and, and some of the metaphors you can play with that. Um, at the same time, I think if they were to do something like that today, it would be great to see that relationship develop a little bit more where you can have Ben try to accept himself or who he is without, um, you know, without the lens of what it means to be in a romantic relationship as that new identity as well, too. So when they make the new Fantastic Four, I'm hoping that, you know, they might be able to, you know, not write out the character of Alicia by any means whatsoever, but allow Ben to kind of come to his new reality under his own mental health of um, what it means for him through his own lens, as opposed to the lens of somebody else that has a romantic interest in him. So very, very well said. And yes, I, I definitely love the, the, the relationship between obviously Alicia Masters and, and Ben Grimm. And I hopefully, you know, in the MCU, they might address her villainous past, or rather the fact that her father is a villain. I hope they will address that at some point. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm right there with you. Michael Chiklis is a fabulous actor. I mean, as much as the, the TV show Gotham went down the tubes very fast at some point. He did a great job in that too. And, uh, and I enjoyed him in that as well. And he's the perfect, perfect uh, actor to play this character. And, and I suppose it does very much reflect that he, the power that he inherits very much reflects himself in the sense. He's very a gruff and rough kind of guy. He's basically, I think, the big old softy, if you will, because he's clearly kind of, you know, very rough and gruff, but at the same time, he has a heart of gold. And he's the one, I think, who cares the most about everybody because he's right. kind of giving Reed advice. And even though, you know, Johnny gets on his nerves and I understand him, I'd be like, you get him, Ben, because I, I would be just as irked with Johnny if I had I been Ben Grimm. But I love the fact that, yeah, that beneath that kind of it was almost like a frankenstein's monster moment especially when mm-hmm. uh, after he's recognized as a hero he has like the children and stuff kind of admiring him it kind of made me think of almost a frankenstein monster of you know i'm not so much of a monster if you will and and i guess that's what they were trying to do somewhat in 2005 mm-hmm. with his relationship between alicia and uh, and and ben and for some very strange reason, it made me think of Red Dragon as well, where obviously, mm. but there you have, of course, a serial killer who is, and uh, um, a blind girl falls in love with the serial killer. But it kind of made me think of that kind of relationship of Dollarhoff with this, uh, this other blind character. But it was a beautiful relationship. And I felt so bad for Ben because 
you can see it's really it rocks his world literally because he's like oh i'm going to go back to my to my woman and uh, things will be okay i'm sure she'll accept me and then we have that tragic moment where he's calling her saying i've got a surprise for you too and it's just terrible right. and I also, I would another crossover I'd love to see is Ben Grimm, aka the thing, with Marv from Sin City, because those two could definitely <laughs> have a lot of talks indeed. Folks, if you've right. not realized I'm a big fan of Sin City, I, and I don't know why. <laughs> and, and I think the Marv character is kind of similar to to the thing in certain in certain aspects because. Uh, maybe Ben has a bigger heart than Marv. I mean, Marv is more cynical and Ben, I think has not reached that, that moment of being as cynical as Marv, but he, Mm -hmm. I think he very much, he wears his heart on his sleeve and he tries to give people advice. And to him, it's all about making people happy, which I really appreciate that. And I think it also speaks somewhat to the Jewish side of this character. Ben Grimm is, you know, one of the, should we say non uh, non disclosed Jew Jewish characters or Jewish superheroes, and that the fact that wanting to make the world a better place, which is at the mm-hmm. core of the Jewish mission, and I think he very much tries to do that, and and mm-hmm. I love that 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 uh, that side of his character. So definitely kudos to Michael Chiklis, and I was so glad he did get to say it's clobbering time. I'm like, please say, it. <laughs> please, because we got the the little um, should we say that what was it, the action figure that's a John oh, yeah, was the prototype, of? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Although, then, I gotta say, I, I go love the fact that the that, that the line came from the prototype first before <laughs> <laughs> we heard Michael Chiklis said it. I love that. Yeah, I, for sure. Yeah, it's like it's clobbering time. I'm like, please, yeah, yeah. please, Michael Chiklis, say it's clobbering time because it's kind of like Hulk smash. You have to have right the thing say it's clobbering time. So that was great. And yeah, I, I did question, like you were mentioning, Sean, the fact of how did he go back into the thing form? I was like, okay. 2005 <laughs> the mcu doesn't exist yet okay we'll right. just buy it but, uh, <laughs> but other than that and that uh, right. ben, ben Grimm was was absolutely fabulous so mm-hmm. let's head to the dark side of the table by taking a closer <laughs> look at our villain we have mr julian mcmahon as victor von doom so sean i know this is very much the bone of contention for a lot of Hardcore comic book fans. What did mm-hmm. you make of our, should we say, first big screen version of Victor Von Doom? Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned before, I, um, before watching this movie, um, I've never read the comics of the Fantastic Four mm-hmm. and, and, you know, still um, haven't read a whole lot of them. And so this is just based on the cin- cinematic portrayal of them. Um, but, you know, Von Doom is definitely one of the iconic villains that we have in the Marvel universe. Um, you know, there's a reason why he's always showing up as being one of the, uh, the biggest villains in the universe with some of the uh, major universe point, uh, what, what do you call it? Like the um, story points that they have, mm-hmm. right. Um, of um, having Victor Von Doom, you know, with Wastelanders that's been coming out and um, some of the other instances where he ends up being, um, you know, the, the leader of earth and, and things like that. And just kind of other uh, things. So obviously he's a big villain in the Marvel universe. And here I think is just really interesting because he definitely gives some green goblin vibes, from Tobey Maguire's uh, Spider-Man that came out in 2002. So I think they're trying to replicate that a little bit, especially with a couple of scenes that they had in there. Like, I I can't remember exactly if they had this in the Spider-Man film, but I remember when you saw the point where 
they're telling Victor Von Doom that they were pulling out of his company. Um, the banks were. They did the little dolly zoom effect that you saw that was made popular in Jaws, where you know it zooms in on him, but then like his background kind of seems like it's zooming out. Um, yeah. And I think they did that in Spider Man as well too. And so I think they were really playing on the popularity of what made a really um, popular villain that they saw worked really well with Spider-Man. And um, what I thought was really fascinating is that this is kind of, again, a stereotypical villain in terms of, for whatever reason, he wants to have more money, more power, even though he's clearly like one of the most, you know, the richest and powerful men on earth. And, you know, like why, why does he still want to continue doing that? And so it's still kind of that struggle of, you know, what that motivation is. Um, But what I find interesting is that what they seem to set up is that he had that in him, but he didn't really accept that fate until he felt like he was losing control of everything. Right. And so he was always somebody that was in control of everything that was happening, you know, all the way through the accident that they had up in space. He was in control of everything that was going on and and was able to make all the decisions for everybody. And then when he was starting to have his transformation and the you know quote unquote bad PR that they were getting from the Fantastic Four and that the banks were pulling out and that he was losing you know more control over his company and what was going on and happening to him uh, biologically is that that's when he seemed to have turned into a villain and kind of accepted the fate that he just needs to you know embrace that personality side of him. But I, I think what's interesting is that even though it was always there it didn't really get triggered until these events happened, which I think um, I don't think this is something that Fox was trying to do, but I think it is something that you can make a commentary on how do people become evil in a sense, right? Or how they make evil decisions. And so I know that Marvel and uh, you know, not just Marvel, but a lot of companies, uh, production companies are, you know, doing less of the black and white villain type and more the complex of uh, complex characters for villains. So like, for example, Thanos, like everyone's like, you know, I can understand why Thanos wanted to do what he wanted to do. He was actually thought he was doing something good. We just didn't agree with what he ended up doing. Right. And so um, I think in this instance with Fantastic Four, I don't think this is what Fox was going for. But this is something I did see where um, even though it set him up to be a villain, it didn't really get triggered until a couple of these things were happening to him that I, I the older I get, the more I understand why people say that not everyone is innocent <laughs> because right. it's one of those things where it's like, well, if this person hadn't done this and this person hadn't done this, like you could do a trigger effect. And it's like, yeah, that person didn't make that decision for them, but it did play a role into that decision process. Right. And so I think it's one of those things where, um, you know, you could go all the way back and, and not to say that, you know, it's people's fault for those decisions, but at the same time, um, I think it's one of those things where had the bank not, you know, threatened to pull out of his company, would he still, you know, gone and made that decision about, you know, accepting to become a villain and go after the Fantastic Four after all that happened? Because, you know, part of his motivation was, you know, trying to be in control of his company and things like that. And, and the Fantastic Four was making it worse for him and everything. And so um, I think it was just kind of an interesting commentary that they made him a typical villain, but um, it's a little bit different because he is already set up to have villain-like tendencies, but it didn't really get triggered until a couple of these events where he started to lose control and he's all about control, right? I mean, and, and did you dig the whole fact of 
He basically creates his costume through the mask that he was given as an award. And, you know, <laughs> and, and that's how he fashions his costume. And did you buy that? You know, that was that was interesting. I think the the mask made sense. What didn't make sense is the wardrobe that he got right after that. Because <laughs> right. it was like a, a, a green like a uh, hood that's just like Victor Von Doom did not, you know, does not seem to be the kind of person that would have that sort of wardrobe just laying around. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did buy into the mask because I think it made a lot of sense and that he saw, I mean, he's a, he's a very vain person, right? Appearance and everything is something that matters to him. And he saw that his appearance was just getting worse in his face. And that was a way for him to kind of accept his new fate. And so I saw it as like a symbolic gesture. I, I think they had to write it in a way for him to kind of make that work. And I think they wrote it pretty well. If you look at it from that perspective, I don't know what the, um, what the motivation was in the comics or anything like that. And so again, I don't have anything to pull off from that, but we look at it from just a cinematic um, from the storytelling writing of the film. I think it made a lot of sense. And I think it made the metaphor uh, made a lot of sense in terms of how they did that. And that his motivation would make sense why he would do that because, you know, given what's around him, you know, that probably has the most significant meaning. And like, what else was he going to do to hide, um, you know, his face transforming because of that? Um, I just didn't buy into the rest of the wardrobe because it's just like, <laughs> why would he have those things laying around? <laughs> exactly. Uh, to, this, yeah, because yeah. this is a guy who probably dresses like with, you know, big signature things like probably Armani or Versace or whatever, you right. know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see him putting on sort of any kind of like a hoodie or looking like Green Arrow, you know, from the show Arrow suddenly. So it was, right. it was a little bit weird. But uh, yeah. I, I did think it was interesting. I did like this version of, of uh, Doctor Doom. And it's very strange because 23-year-old me in 2005 definitely missed this. But I was like, wait a minute. This is evil Elon Musk. Because, <laughs> because this was roughly around the time when Elon Musk was going to launch the SpaceX program. So mm-hmm. I was like, wait a minute, is, is a Fox and the rights, et cetera, making commentary on, on Elon <laughs> Musk? And like, then they're, they're not fans of Elon's. I was not to mention Julian does look remarkably like a young Elon Musk. So. That's- with more hair, though, at the time. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. With less of the yeah. receding hairline. Yes, it's true. Right. So I was like, wait a minute. This must be Elon Musk. This must be a stand in for him because just the way he's all about the you know conquering space and wanting to expand the world, his world. I mean, like other, of course, big business people are doing. But I'm sure I mean, I'm almost could put my hand on the fire, as they say over here, that this was, I think, a a should we say metaphor or comparison or allegory for, for what Elon Musk was doing at the time, especially as I said, because 2006 and the year after is when he actually unsuccessfully launched SpaceX. So it was already in the media that Elon was working on that. So I'm like, yeah, this is probably, probably the, the rich tycoon that, uh, that Elon Musk was at the time before he became even bigger than he is as he is today. But I very much enjoyed this version of Victor Von Doom. I'm a big fan of Dr. Doom in the comics. And funnily enough, we barely ever get to see Victor without his mask in the comics. In fact, folks, people have often, often hypothesized on what Victor looks like behind the mask, whether it's mm-hmm. a psychological condition of his that he thinks he's ugly and therefore is hiding his ugliness with the mask or whether he mm. literally is scarred 
It's never really been confirmed, if you will. But here, obviously, it's clearly because, like you rightfully said, he's all about appearances. He's all about aesthetics. So being an esthete, he wants to hide his face in that sense. And I love the Mm -hmm. fact that we did get... We were, Latveria was addressed, which I was very happy about. And I was, mm-hmm. I was, I was very, very, very pleased with that. But yeah, he's, I think he's very much, in this case, at the time, was very much, the villain was the, the um, coin opposite of the hero. And I think Victor right. is very much what Reed Richards would have been like had he gone bad. And so right. I think that was the, the concept at the time. Like you rightfully said, these days, you make your villains way more complex, way more, um, should we say, they, they are, of course, they see themselves as the heroes in their own mind. And it's all about mm-hmm. something greater than I want to have all the money in the world. I want to rule the world. <laughs> it goes beyond those things these days. I'm kind of glad because it's like, okay, once you have all the money in the world, what are you going to do with it? Right. So, <laughs> so right. it's kind of that same situation here. But Julian, I think, was was very fair to the character. And I like the fa- and I enjoyed that he was given these very the powers are a little bit weird because so he can control electricity and he has superhuman strength. I guess mm-hmm. that's what he does. Right. Like, <laughs> All right. I'll buy it. But um, yeah. well, and, and I, I think they try to explain that by saying that. You know, when that accident happened, he was like inside the shield. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he took on the properties of like the shield, which was, you know, electricity and the material that he ended up taking was like some sort of alloy and things like that. So it it kind of made sense in that regard, but it was very different kind of explanation than the other four <laughs> in terms of how they got their superpowers. Right. Mm-hmm. It was, yes, I, I very yeah. much agree. <laughs> but I did like that also he went after the, the Fantastic Four, kind of like Batman would do in the Tower of, ba- of Babel, where he knows all their weaknesses and then approaches things scientifically. So I can freeze mm-hmm. rubber. I can, you know, take the thing off the, off the, um, the board. And right. I, I enjoy that, that he approaches things scientifically, almost like I said, it very much was reminiscent to me of Batman with Tower of Babel. But uh, and then the fact that he gets then frozen, almost like uh, Han Solo in Star Wars and kind of like this right. uh, carbonite form and then is carted yeah. off that barrier. I was like, oh, OK, I, uh, I, I enjoyed that. So, yeah, all in all, I think Julian did a good job as much as I would have preferred Doctor Doom should we say even more menacing and even more kind of in control. Once again, I think this is 2005. So it is, I forgive them because I, <laughs> but, but I was just happy to get Dr. Doom because I just, I'm right. a huge fan of that villain. And I mean, I don't know about you, Sean, but I think it's about time we actually get Dr. Doom in the MCU. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I think we'll definitely see that. Well, and, and it's, it's very interesting because everyone wants to see the the classic villains. And I think, you know, with Spider-Man, what I've liked about Tom Holland's Spider-Man so far is that we haven't seen the classic villains mm-hmm. of Spider-Man, right? So we got to see Vulture that we've never seen on screen before. We got to see uh, Mysterio, which I thought they did a great job of of um, updating Mysterio to make sense in you know in the 20, uh, 2019 or twenty yeah twenty nineteen is when it came out, right? Mm-hmm. And um, um, I think you know Von Doom is somebody I'd be interested to see if if um, he comes out like with the character when they introduce the characters or if he's going to be a villain that comes out a little bit later. Um, but I think it'll be hard to have a fantastic uh, four without 
uh, Von Doom. Same way, like how you can't really have the X Men without a Magneto. You know, they just kind of always um, complemented each other, but have always um, you know been together. You know, like you know, just like peanut butter and jelly, basically. And so, I think if we don't see Von Doom in the first movie, I think it'll be it'll just be a matter of time before they introduce him. And I actually wouldn't be surprised if Feige's thinking about maybe introducing Von Doom in a different movie that the Fantastic Four is not in. Right. And that he's a, maybe either a villain or shows up as like a mid credit scene in a different movie. But then, you know, then they start getting intertwined with each other. Um, so we'll see what they what they do with that. But, um, yeah, the other thing that you talk about with uh, Von Doom is that, um, you know, I, I know you said you, you wish he was a little bit menacing. But, you know, think about how in this movie he was a successful businessman of a, you know, Fortune 500 company. Yeah. You, you have to play the game in order to get to that level. Right. And so I think he was menacing. He just didn't ex, uh, externally um, express that, but he was just like what you said, he was very strategic in what he did because just as you mentioned before, he got the, um, the freezing tank, he got the heat seeking missile to take out Johnny storm. He did all these things as a strategist. And so I think he was menacing in the sense that he was always thinking those things. He just knew that he can't just express that, um, you know, externally because then people would catch on to him. So he had to be menacing in the sense that he had to mislead people and not let them realize what he's thinking, but he's constantly, you know, planning all these things. And he saw that come through a little bit in the, in the back end when he's like by himself or, you know, not with the fantastic four or anything like that. But I, I think you saw that, but I understand what you're saying that it would be good to see him more at a maniacal level <laughs> when yeah. you see him introduced in the MCU. Yeah. <laughs> I want my, I want my villain psychotic. What can I say? Right. Yeah. That's, that's just me, but, uh, yeah. but no, yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I mean, yeah, he's definitely is very calculating here. It seems to me like they almost made him like the Marvel version of Lex Luthor, if you will, mm-hmm. in the sense right. it's like almost kind it, it, it almost seemed like a callback to the Gene Hackman version of Lex Luthor in the Superman right. movies where it's like, yeah. you know, the, the, the bread, it's all about the brains, but in, but unlike Lex Luthor, he then gets powers to it as well. So he gets brawn to his brain too. But yeah, I, I think Julian is a good template for the character of, of Victor Von Doom slash Dr. Doom. So I guess, I guess we'll see what the MCU does with this, but uh, I thought it was, he was mm-hmm. definitely a, a fair villain for our heroes indeed. So let's get to ratings then, Sean. What do you give Fantastic Four out of 10? Um, honestly, given the context of when it was made and uh, not just, you know, the story writing, but just its place in terms of, you know, also competing. I don't want to say competing necessarily, but within the world of um, there being X-Men films and Spider-Man films and things like that. Um, I, I give it a seven out of 10 because I think they did a great job with the story and introducing people um, into the family of the Fantastic Four. Um, and I, I think, you know, by and large, the story writing, they did a good job. I think if they had maybe another half hour to develop a little bit more of the characters and to kind of see the story develop a little bit more as opposed to, um you know, them trying to fix what's what's going on. And then we had these two, you know, um, action scenes where you saw the Fantastic Four, like saving people because of Ben Grimes, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, accidentally um, 
put he didn't push somebody off, but you know, with where Ben Grimes right well, I think at the Brooklyn Bridge or whatever. Um, so we get that, and then the you know final battle scene with Von Doom. I think some of that stuff was a little bit rushed, mm-hmm. um, and I think that they were trying to capitalize on that superhero popularity in the film. That I think there were some things that were just kind of lacking because they probably wanted to have something out there and and start putting things out, especially with, you know, I think it was a Fox property. And so they, um, you know, saw the success of X-Men. And so they're probably trying to capitalize on all those things. Um, I think the story writing probably could have just improved just to with the character development. Um, but overall, I thought it was still a pretty good story. And the fact that um, the graphics, again, like I said, for the time wasn't bad, but when you look at it compared to some of the other movies, it seemed like, it wasn't as good as, you know, even, you know, Fox's own X-Men. Cause I think, you know, X-Men wasn't, you know, uh, superb and it's, uh, it was superb in its own time. It's not superb now, but I think when you compare the two with the visual effects, it was actually kind of interesting to see that it seems like X-Men that came out like years earlier, I think, you know, five years earlier than Correct. that. Correct. Yes. X-Men um, came out in 2000. Yep. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that the visual effects seem like, you know, you would have thought that the F- Fantastic Four came out first before X-Men. So very well said. Yes. It almost seemed to me like, yeah, I was like, wait a minute. This seems like <laughs> like pre X-Men because the, the first X-Men film, which with all its flaws, I think is still very well loved today. And it, it blows my mind mm-hmm. to think that that movie is celebrating 21 years. It just, yes. it, it really is like, <laughs> oh man, I'm getting old. And it really, it really, it really sort of saddened me for that reason. But uh, right. I, you know what? It seems like we are definitely in sync because I also give this a seven out of 10 as I did enjoy it more than I thought I would. Because I like groan, I have to watch Fantastic Four, but I actually did enjoy it. And, and as I mentioned before, I think this is actually the best of the three we've been given thus far. And we'll guess, to, I guess, uh, your move, MCU. So I guess we'll see what, <laughs> what they do with this. But yeah, it's, it's enjoyable. And, and unlike other films that I've mentioned on this podcast, folks, I don't think this one needs adult beverages to be in, enjoyed because <laughs> there are films which I've mentioned where, yeah, if you have a couple of drinks and you have your mates around for like some pizza and stuff, then you can enjoy. This one actually can be enjoyed sober too. So it's a seven <laughs> out of 10 for me. So let's get to recommendations, Sean. Did you have anything that you think folks should check out if they enjoyed or would like to find out more about the Fantastic Four, be it comic book wise or otherwise? Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned before, um, I didn't read a whole lot of the Fantastic Four comics growing up and Mm -hmm. I I still only read a few issues. Um, One of them I will mention is um, a series called Marvels, which is interesting because I know, you know, it's a Marvel comic. Um, but there's a series called Marvels where the Fantastic Four are are involved with kind of an intergalactic um, issue or an intergalactic event that happened. And there's also a audio drama with the same name that they put out, I think, um, two years ago that is based on the comics loosely. But um, I found that to be a really interesting story because um, you can kind of see how the superhero team looks through the eyes of a particular journalist. And so it's not from their point of view, but it's from the journalist's point of view mm-hmm. and how their point of view, it, it, and it's not just a fantastic four, but they also, um, you know, brought in the X-Men, the mutants. And um, I think Spider-Man was in there a couple of times and things like that. But fantastic four was at the core of that. And so, um, so I, I it's not really connected to the movie by any means, but I think it's still really, 
um, interesting uh, comic run to read through because it's very different than some of the other ones that you may have read uh, traditionally, um, you know, currently or otherwise. And so I actually really um, enjoyed that one that has the Fantastic Four in there. Um, but then I also asked my colleagues over at Comic Watch, where I um, do uh, TV and film reviews for. And I had one colleague that said that the um, Empire Fallout Fantastic Four issue was hilarious because um, it has been an Alicia becoming parents to a bunch of quote little murder babies and it was great (laughs) (laughs) so i was like well based on that i have to read it (laughs) um i had somebody who is also a huge fantastic four fan that gave um a lot of uh recommendations so anything written by uh, mark wade w-a-i-d um jonathan hickman um the current run of fantastic four and um i think barnes uh b-y-r-n-e Um, and then he also said that uh, Straczynski's run was also really good. The only thing was that it was cut short, um, but it was still really good for what it was and everything like that. And then um, Dan Slott's run was good as well, too. So so, so those, those are some of the recommendations I got from my colleagues um, over at Comic Watch. And I think, you know, any of those would be really good. And, and they have a huge, you know, a long history. They were the first, um, you know, comic written by Stan Lee. Um, superhero um, team written by Stanley. I think actually for superhero, you know, under the Marvel name, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. um, that uh, that Stanley and Jack Kirby um, put together. And so they're the longest, they have the longest history of any of the, um, you know, mutants or the Avengers or anything like that, any of the superhero teams or stories that we've had. Um, so there's, you know, a long history and, you know, it's for one of those things where it's like, you know, just go to your local comic shop and, you know, ask them what they would recommend or just, you know, pick up one and see what looks interesting and read that one. Um, because from what I've, what I've gathered and read is that all of them are really interesting. There are some that can get confusing because then you start going into when they spent years in like the negative zone and, you know, and, and they have kids. And, and for those who are really interested in the MCU now and know about King the Conqueror and the Loki series, from what I understand, King the Conqueror is actually a future version of Reed and Sue's uh, son, Franklin Richards, if I remember correctly. So you are correct, sir. And definitely a big, yes. big <laughs> shout out to, to Comic Watch indeed. And I will take it back to the old school stuff. Of course, I would definitely suggest the early stories of Fantastic Four written by, of course, Stan Lee and, and Jack Kirby. They're absolutely essential reading, I think, fans, especially the first five issues. They don't necessarily constitute an arc. They're among the best Fantastic Four comics for all the major elements they introduced, at least for me. The first three episodes, of course, guide the team through their origin, exploring their powers. You have the debut of their iconic costumes. Issue four sees the Silver Age introduction of Namor, the Submariner, who God willing will get soon on the MCU. And issue five. I think Black Panther 2, if I remember correctly. God, yeah, exactly. I'm so hoping because I'm yeah. I'm needing Namor the Submariner at this point. <laughs> and, <laughs> and of course, we have the iconic issue five, which is the debut of the Fantastic Four's greatest villain, which is 
Dr. Doom. So, of course, dear listeners, if you want to be like the sensational Sean Winningham and join us here on the show to discuss a movie of your choice, feel free to shoot us an email, happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. We always appreciate your thoughts and feedback. You can send that to us also at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. Feel free to show support by giving us a like on Facebook, where you'll find us as Happiness in Darkness. Follow us on Twitter at High Darkness Pod or on, also on Instagram at The Hind Darkness. Also, if you'd like to support the podcast, feeling generous, you can check out the great tiers we have going on Patreon. There you'll be able to pick the films that go outside of what is considered regular superhero movies or even films inspired by comics like Road to Perdition or I Kill Giants or Death Note or even films which inspired comics such as the Aliens franchise, Robocop, Terminator and more. Check all that out. Head on over to patreon.com slash happiness in darkness. And when it comes to you, Sean, when you're not here discussing superhero movies with me, where can folks find you on the interwebs? Yeah, so me personally, um, people can connect with me on Twitter. My username is the Sean Hulk, and it's spelled T H E S E A N H U L K. Um, I also run a podcast with my co-host Kevin Stoliker called The Captioned Life, and we have a website. Um, uh, excuse me, sorry, <laughs> we have a website, thecaptionedlife.com, and that's spelled T H E C A P T I O N E D. LIFE.com. And then all of our social media is also under username Captioned Life as well, too. So we're on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube. Pretty much if there's a social media platform, we're probably on it. Um, and then I also write um, TV and film reviews for the website Comic Watch, and their website is comic watch.com. Fabulous. Well, folks, definitely be sure to check out Sean and the wonderful things that he does because they are indeed wonderful. And when it comes to me, for you country music lovers, I do host the radio show Whiskey and Cigarettes, where we play today's country, traditional country, and everything else in between. For more info about that, visit our website. That's whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com. Podcast-wise, Feel free to also check out our other project, Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast, where myself, Zan Sprouse, and Rachel Friend are reviewing all the movies that won the Oscar for Best Picture from 1927's Wings to the present day. Also, if superhero TV shows are your speed, myself and Charles Skaggs can be found on The Fandom Zone, where we're recently we're actually talking about Hawkeye. We'll be wrapping that up very soon. And also we wrapped up the uh, season three of the Titans and uh, Doom Patrol on Titan Talk, the Titans podcast. And speed things to come on this show. Next time we'll be taking on the 2015 Josh Trank film, Fantastic Four. So we're going to be staying in the Fantastic <laughs> Royal Realm. That said, um, when it comes to you, Sean, I want to thank you so, so much for your time. I truly appreciate it. It was great having you on and you definitely have an open invitation on the podcast anytime. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Oh, the pleasure was certainly mine. Well, folks, thanks as always for listening to the show and supporting us. We will see you next time with Fantastic Four. Until then, stay super. Ciao, my people.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.